Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Today, we've got Ari Van Gemmeren on the podcast with us. He's the founder of Lombard Equities Group after moving on from venture capital. We're going to talk about syndication and how real estate is the better investment. Talked about pros and cons of real estate investing versus stocks, why to choose syndication, and the benefits of passive investing. So without further ado, welcome Ari. All right. Well, thanks Ari for coming out on our podcast today. You're with Lombard Equities Group out of San Francisco, who kind of focuses on doing investments in Portland and San Francisco. You want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I started Lombard Equities last year in the middle of the pandemic, which was an interesting time to start a business. And I'm happy to share many more details about how that came about and, and how the launch happened. To go back a little further, I am a San Francisco Bay Area native, born and raised in the San Francisco East Bay. So for the listeners that are acquainted with the area, a little town called Walnut Creek, which is sort of like its own city now. I went to UC Davis, graduated, and went right into a medical device sales job, which was probably the worst job I've ever had. And it was a great, humbling experience for a young, egotistical college graduate that thought he was the top of the world and quickly found out I was not. From there, I joined a large money management firm and started my career. It's actually a firm pretty well known in Oregon, Fisher Investments. And I was in the equity research department with that group. Left. Fisher went to Goldman Sachs. I was with Goldman Sachs for about five years. And then I actually joined a client's venture capital firm where I was focused on financial technology and real estate technology investments. And I stayed with them for about two years. And it was an awesome experience for many reasons. And eventually left there last year to start my own company focused on real estate investments. So Chris shared with me a little of the listener base. I was a white collar professional most of my career and had aspirations to acquire my own real estate portfolio and build my way to financial freedom for years. And as a guy in the investment business, I was really focused on why I thought real estate was the best asset class to invest in. And I've really run the gamut of investments. I've done stock market investments. I've done investments in Goldman Sachs. I did venture capital. And I stuck with real estate most of that time and still believe it's probably the best place to put your own money and client money. So that's a little background on myself. I have two kids. I married my college sweetheart who swam on the women's team at Davis when I was on the men's team and still live in the Bay Area. And unlike everybody else, I'm not planning to leave the Bay Area right now. Although <laughs> everyone else seems to be, there's a mass exodus of all my friends have left. So it's kind of sad. But anyways, I digress. Cool. Well, thank you, Ari. It's Chris Shepard here. Yeah, so you just touched on a pretty, I guess, a controversial statement from a financial advisor. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't think I've ever heard a financial advisor say that real estate is the best place to put your money or clients' money. I mean, to me, that seems like something very, very different. Than, so why do you think that? Well, many of my former colleagues will think I'm being sacrilegious to even say that. And I actually just had a lively debate with the former head of my office at GS over this exact topic where he said, basically, I don't think you're right. And I said, okay, everyone's entitled to their opinion. And 
I will caveat my statement with it's not, it doesn't make sense for everybody. It's, it's always dependent on what are your personal investment goals and what are you trying to do? But my own road to Damascus conversion on this, when I was at Fisher, I was a hardcore stock perspective that the stock market was the best place to be. And I really believe that. And when I was at Goldman for a lot of my time at Goldman, I really believe that too. What happened for me, and it, this is going to be, this is going to sound crazy to you guys, and no one else in real estate ever says this, but I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And when I read Rich Dad, <laughs> and I joke because every, every interview on Bigger Pockets, everybody's started with, they read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it got me thinking that I was sort of on this, this path that didn't, like, I had never really questioned, like, go work for a great company, pour money into your 401k, retire at 65, and kind of hope that you're okay for your, the remaining 30 years of your life or whatever. And I, I'd been on that path and was happy with my 401k. And I, I, I thought I was doing all the right things. And it got me sort of questioning my reality. The other distinction is at the firm I worked with, many of my clients were exceptionally wealthy individuals. And I started seeing commonalities that many of them owned real estate. Many of them were earning millions a year in real estate and rental income. And I hadn't even delved into the tax benefits of owning real estate yet. And so I started sort of questioning what I was selling. And I think there's a place for stock market investing. Absolutely. Of course, one of the major advantages is, is liquidity. So you can get your money out easily. My contention was if you were trying to build financial freedom, you could do it faster through real estate. And I actually think if you risk adjust the asset class, and have some controls in place, I actually think it's less risky in many ways than stock market investing. Now, the counterpoint from everybody in the investment management business is, well, you can lever stocks too. And it's not an apples to apples comparison because one could say the stock market returns eight to 10% per year. And I think real estate should be able to return more than that on an annualized basis over time. And if you compare starting with 100 grand in real estate and 100 grand in stocks, and you compound stocks at 8%, but you compound real estate at 12%, you end up with a significantly larger pot of money at the end with real estate. And the counterpoint always from every investment manager in the, in who does stocks is, well, yeah, but you're levering real estate and you're not levering stocks. And to make it a fair comparison, you should lever your stock holdings. My counterpoint to that is always, yeah, but you don't have margin call risk with real estate, but you have a margin call risk with stocks. And so the, what does that mean? So margin call being, if I lever my stock portfolio and I go through 2008, the bank is going to make me sell stocks to pay down my margin loan because my ratios are out of whack. And by contrast, if you don't take short-term debt risk with real estate, you really don't run a margin call risk with your real estate. So you can actually hold through difficult times and come out fine with real estate. The one point I would say on favor of stocks is, and I haven't heard anyone argue this, is there's no reason you couldn't lever your stock portfolio by 30%, not run margin call risk and, and juice your returns as well. So, but then I haven't even yeah. gotten into the benefits of the many other things I think make real estate a superior investment. So yeah, yeah that's a long winded answer to your question. With, uh, with real estate is when you're leveraging, isn't the money significantly cheaper than the margin calls and margin for stocks? No, I wouldn't say so. At Schwab or Goldman or JP Morgan, margining your stocks is actually pretty cheap, two to 4%. So the wow. interest is not that much to margin stocks. The point I would say to what Chris was saying beyond that is 
A, there's nothing you as an investor can do to make Apple do better, right? You can't make Exxon do better. You certainly can't if you buy the S&P 500, make the S&P 500 do better. The benefit of real estate is, in my mind, is if you maintain strict risk controls going in and you know what you're doing, so you have a base level of education and knowledge about the asset class, I think you can control for risk pretty well. Like I think you can underwrite to bad case scenarios and kind of probability weight your outcomes with real estate in a way that you can't with stocks so that you can actually control for returns, understanding that returns are not guaranteed. But what I like about real estate is that you can plug it in pretty effectively into any sort of underwriting model and control for outcomes in a way that you really can't with the stock market. So in addition to saying, I think with levered returns, you can produce higher returns of real estate. I would argue that there is an ability to actually do analysis on real estate in a way that doesn't really exist as much in the stock market. There are guys out there who can pick stocks and can do it with a degree of effectiveness, but I mean even, you know, their error rate is still pretty high. You know, although they do produce they there are guys that can produce outsized returns with stocks. But I think for your average investor, white collar professional, my finding for myself was it made sense to start investing in real estate and start trying to buy property. Nice. Well, let's, yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. let's talk about that. How did, uh, <laughs> so you just started a syndication business like in the last kind of like year, year and a half. Is that right? The last six months, I would say. Yeah. Okay. So I had heard about syndication for years and there's this odd phenomenon in which I can't, I, I don't know how to explain it, but in real estate specifically, there's this strange thing I've noticed over the years that it's the one industry that seems to attract all these seminars and conferences that you pay money for and you go and you learn how to do stuff. And the thing that seems to be interesting right now for a lot of these guys is pitching the idea of being a syndicator, like, oh, become a syndicator, start syndicating money, doing it this way. I, in the beginning, decided not to do that for two reasons. One is I wasn't legally permitted to do so because I was a fiduciary to my clients. I was a licensed professional in the financial services business and I couldn't raise outside capital for deals to start with. So that was my first piece. The second piece is I don't feel comfortable taking investor money unless I know what I'm doing. And I know that there's a lot of guys that say, go out and syndicate your first deal and raise capital from investors, and just get going and use other people's money. And I, I understand why, because it is a capital intensive business to get into. I personally wasn't comfortable doing that until I had taken my lumps with my own investments and really kind of learned the game from the ground up running with my own money. So my first deal Several years back, I bought a five-unit building in Portland, which is how I came to meet you guys as well. And I wanted to just get started with the business and do it with my own money and really learn. And I've taken a lot of lumps on that first property. And since then, I've bought a small apartment building per year for myself and started feeling like I developed enough knowledge that I felt comfortable going and taking money from investors to try and take down a bigger deal. And that's what we did. And so far, so good. So. That's great. So maybe kind of for our listeners too, what made you decide on Portland or how did you decide that that was a market you wanted to get into? Because you're, you're in San Francisco. Yeah. So I first looked at investing here, of course, because I'm local and it, made, yeah. it, it was easier for me to look here. So I if, actually... If you, can, if you can, like investing locally is the best, right? Because you can go physically touch it. You can go see it. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to invest locally. I'll say that. And 
So my first deal before the fiveplex in, in Portland was a fourplex in Oakland that I looked at and I was actually in contract on. And it was an interesting experience. I would say, first of all, the San Francisco Bay Area is a much more difficult market, I think, to invest in than Portland for a lot of reasons, which I'm happy to go into. People make a ton of money here. It's not like you can't make money in the SF Bay Area. It just takes a higher level of knowledge to get around some of the local the local issues. So my first deal was a fourplex here in Oakland. And I remember distinctly that one of the four units was occupied by an 88-year-old woman who was on rent control, who was paying like $700 a month for a two-unit apartment that should have been renting for like $2,600 a month in Oakland. And mm-hmm. I remember this distinct feeling. I was a Goldman at the time. I remember this distinct feeling of my business plan was like waiting for her to pass away basically because there's nothing you can do to the tenant. And I just felt like that wasn't really the business I wanted to be in of like just kind of hoping for someone to move along, right? And the other thing was given my line of work, I didn't want to be in a position where I would end up on the front page of any kind of newspaper for messing with any tenants either. So I just said, you know what? This tenant has outlived the last three owners. I'm not sure I'm going to make the mo- I'm not sure I'm going to make this deal work. So I'm going to move on from this and look elsewhere. So I actually dropped out of that deal. And I'll tell you guys more about with my current business, I've been offering on a couple Oakland apartment complexes more recently. And it's been sort of a similar fast finding process yeah. today. It's actually much worse today. But anyways, so that, that led me to say, okay, the price of entry in, in the Bay Area is a lot. First of all, it's like playing a $100 blackjack table. And I wanted to play a start at the $10 table instead of the $100 table. So I, I started looking in Portland instead, which is funny to say because Portland is also quite expensive compared to other markets, right? Yeah. People invest in the Midwest all over the place where it's much less expensive. So yeah, yeah, like why Portland? So first of all, with my background with Fisher, I knew Portland pretty well. I'd already kind of seen the growth story taking place, seen that it was a top location for in-migration across the West Coast. There's a great graphic, one of the firms up there has, that the cost of living, adjusted cost of living in Portland is way less than all the other major West Coast cities. So even in a time like now with the pandemic and despite the rioting and all the stuff going on, I still felt like Portland was always going to be an attractive place to go because it's on the West Coast. It has good employment opportunities. It's a one-hour flight to San Francisco, to Seattle, to Los Angeles. It's easy to get everywhere. So I like the demographic equation. We had a lot of family. So more locally, like Portland is sort of local for me. We have a lot of family in town. My wife has a lot of family up there. So we spent a lot of time in Portland. And I would say third of all, Portland had some factors that I liked, like supply constraint, for example. So the top neighborhoods are constrained by geographic boundaries, like rivers, mountains. So if you want to buy in the Northwest or in the Pearl District, they really can't expand out anywhere, right? So your inventory is a little bit stable. There's new development and there's so many things happening, but I liked that the city couldn't just sprawl in every direction. So I felt like in the long run, if you're a property owner in Portland, you're going you're gonna to do well because you have in-migration, you have a city that I would say notwithstanding the recent summer riots is, is still going to be an attractive place for businesses and people to go and a constraint, sort of an artificial and geographic constraint on growth, which made me like Portland, you know, and then- You talked about the urban growth boundary in all the cities in Oregon for our artificial constraints. Yeah, artificial. Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of what I'm hearing is like, you've really done your homework. Like this is like yeah. a very in-depth analysis and 
you know, really like drilled down and figured out like what you like about it and what you don't. And that's what's yeah. so impressive, I think. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to overplay myself. I mean, I think when I first made an investment, it was, I knew the Bay Area and I knew Portland and I, I felt like I could do Portland. And over time I've been studying the city. I kind of take this line from Grant Cardone who said he likes to invest in larger, more progressive type cities from a politics perspective. And one of his reasons why is a lot of the policies that the city passes are actually perversely in the benefit of landowners, right? So for example, rent control, right? I mean, Portland has a rent control regime, which I would say is pretty light, lightweight compared to the Bay Area. But the end effect of rent control in the Bay Area has been skyrocketing rental costs for tenants, right? So it's actually sort of hurt tenants. But perversely, that's to the benefit of landlords over time because your asset is actually worth more. Or like I would point to affordable housing measures. I think we need more affordable housing. I think it's a great, that's a great strategy. But one of the negative effects of it is it reduces development. And if you reduce development, you reduce supply, which, in, which increases the rental cost that tenants have to pay at the end of the day, which still benefits landlords. So I think a lot of right-leaning investors, to not really to dig into politics too much, but what I've seen from raising capital for deals in Portland is big family offices are sort of hesitant to invest in Portland or in Oakland or in San Francisco. And one of their reasoning is, well, you guys' politics are crazy, right? And I, I always say, okay. But I think that actually it's the landlord's benefit and here's why. And they're always like, oh, interesting. Okay, I see what you're saying. Because beyond the urban you know, boundary that you mentioned, Chris, there's like artificial constraints all over the place, all over the city to development, which is good if you're a landowner in the city. It's, it's not great if I'm a tenant trying to find a, find a place. And so I think there's got to be some fine, there's got to be some lines between how they think about it to actually try to help tenants. But as an investor, I look at it and I say, that's actually kind of, kind of works. So yeah, the city has, well, the city of Portland has for the past like 10 years, you know, this is a housing state of emergency, but they haven't really created that many affordable units. Right. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell, I'll tell you from looking at many times adding units to properties I own, they make it really expensive to add units. I mean, it's not easy for me to add units. I have extra space I mean, you guys know, you got, you guys manage all these buildings. Like I have extra space in all these buildings to add units, but it's like at least 25,000 in city fees per unit to add a unit. I would love to add units, you know, and, and then we would ease the housing, but it doesn't make economic sense. They make it yeah. really hard to do it, which, yeah. which is perversely is good if you already own land. So those are kind of the, the thought processes for why Portland. Yeah. Portland is, is a great place to invest. Let's dive back into, so you know, you were working your white collar job and, you know, first of all, why, why did you make the move? I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but like, yeah, you know, why did you chase financial freedom instead of the normal 401k retire at 65? And then how, you know, how, how did you make that move? And sure. Why don't you like dive into a little bit of the preparation that you took too? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely saw, and I started doing the math in Excel and I I saw that there was a, there was an escape velocity at which point I would be able to work my white collar job and not have to work my white collar job. And I could see that that was pretty achievable. And I would say, you don't have to do syndication. I didn't have to do, I didn't have to do syndication. I'll, I'll get into like why I decided to do it. 
but I definitely like it's a little bit slower if you're trying to just buy properties for yourself and build. But I definitely think it's feasible for any white collar professional to do their homework, do their math, and build something for themselves. As long as you maintain really rigorous underwriting and you don't you don't BS yourself, right? And so what's the you're saying? talking about building something in real estate or like building up your 401k and not investing in real estate? No, no, I'm talking about investing in real estate. So I stopped giving money to my retirement account years ago. Because I, I basically ran the numbers and I, I said, okay, if I put 100K in my retirement account, just like discussion, or I put 50K in real estate and I grow real estate at the rate I think I can grow it at, I think I underwrote to like 12%, it would annualize 12%. Or I grow my 401k at 8%, which is the stock market kind of long-term return, called 8 to 10% is usually where people underwrite to. In 30 years, I had more money with real estate than I had in my, in my retirement plan. And so I started saying, well, why am I putting money in a retirement plan? And then, and then I looked at it and I said, and in addition, I can't use the retirement plan money until I'm 65. And then I got to pay taxes to take it out. So, you know, and then I, I started doing a Roth 401k. I got around that. So at least that, you know, I was paying, putting post-tax money in and then I, I didn't pay taxes on the back end. But the same thing, you're still getting sort of worse returns. The, all of that is to say, you can use your retirement plan to invest in real estate. It's feasible to do that. I never did it because I like to have control. And what I've, what I understand, my accountant tells me I'm wrong, but this is what I understand is you can't invest in your own projects through a retirement yeah, account. That is true. That is correct. You cannot okay. manage the property. That's what I thought. That's, yeah. that's what I thought. So you'd have to invest in a syndicator's deal or in an LP role, which for me, historically, I've liked to just put my money in my own deals because I, I can get a higher return, I think, putting my money in my own stuff and kind of leveraging myself, if you will, right? So that to me was never really a, an option I was particularly interested in. So I actually stopped years ago putting money in retirement plans because I, I said I'd rather save my money, pay taxes, but then buy real estate. So what I was saying is I think any white collar professional can do what I started doing, which is find your first deal, figure out a way that you can add value, right? And so, you know, value added is like a term that is used oftentimes in this business, but basically like you buy a house that's junky and you get it for a good deal and you, you do something to it, you add value to it, you make it better. And what I wanted to do, I never did single family homes. I went right to multi multiplexes. And I, I still remember buying the first deal and my wife sort of saying, why do we have to go so big? Why can't we just buy a house, you know, in Beaverton or something for 300 grand. Like, why do we have to do this bigger deal? And I, I remember saying, well, I've just made the mental decision that I want to buy apartment buildings. And I think there's value in doing that. You can do either. Like, I'm not saying one's better than the other. It's just the path I chose. So my, my thesis was I would underwrite my deals to three years and only invest in a deal if the, I had the potential at the end of three years to take a lot of money out of it via cash out refinance, which is tax-free and roll that money forward into the next deal. And if I was able to do a deal per year, a deal every other year and do that, it turns into sort of like a moving train, which is very heavy and hard to slow down. And over time, you could really snowball that into something pretty impressive. And that might take 10 years, maybe 15 years. But I started this journey when I was 30. So my thesis was when I'm 45, I'll be in a great situation. I'll have a pretty sizable real estate portfolio and I'd be way better off than if I didn't do it. So that, that kind of was my contention to just buying properties myself and doing it. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. So the path that you're taking is, is very active. You're focusing on adding value, 
forcing the appreciation of a property up. There's a handful of roads that you can go down when you're investing. You know, you can take the passive route, and that's that's what can be really appealing about the stock market is that it's just 100% passive, and you can just like set it and forget it. You there's no maintenance. Yeah. You don't have to talk to a property manager. And in real estate too, there is a like a passive route, but it's still you know there's still some management required. So real estate. I would say, you know, and I completely agree with you, especially when you put it on Excel. AJ and I have had this argument. I I read a book on investing in the stock market and how it's so simple and mm-hmm. it, it can be really easy. And so we went through the journey of putting it all in Excel. And I I only used a 3% rate of return for real estate. And, you know, leveraged real estate is still like you know over the course of 30 years is still two to three times better than a yeah 10 percent rate of return in the stock market and that three percent is on the total asset level right so it appreciates three yeah, yeah. percent a year okay yep. so your but your net your net levered return is still going to be in the teens right oh yeah for sure okay well with yeah. cash flow as well uh, that's yeah I mean, the, so I underwrote, I underwrote the 12, but assuming the leverage and the cash flow and the, and the debt pay down. But yeah, I think the same thing. So yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a fun exercise and we showed it to all of our brokers and they're just like, wow, it's pretty amazing. And, and then we started reading the millionaire real estate investor by Gary Keller for our book yeah. club book this month. And, you know, it just really kind of ties it all together, the power of real estate. So I feel like yeah. that's a pretty good answer on the why. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think you raise a good point too on the passive versus active, right? So when I first started getting into this, I was constantly saying, why isn't everybody doing this? Like, I don't understand why my clients aren't doing this. And I had clients worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I would why, like, why aren't you just buying real estate, you know, or, or people I worked with, they were very, very, very successful making millions of dollars a year they would put their money in mutual funds. And I would always say, why aren't you buying real estate? Like if I, if I was making millions of dollars a year, I would buy a bunch of apartment complexes and every year I would do the same thing. And then in 10 years time, you'd, have an, you'd, have, you'd be making more money from your rental income than you're making from your job. So I, I never understood why people did it. And the answer came to me over time. It really came down to everybody's, everybody's different, right? I had a willingness to put up with all of the difficulties of owning real estate. And there's a lot of difficulties. Like I, I won't mince words, nor would you guys, I'm sure. Like there's hmm. a lot of, there's a lot of ups and downs. I, I like there's to say challenge, that, challenges, really. <laughs> <laughs> challenge, <laughs> challenges that can be overcome. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, totally. So I was willing to put up with that. And I remember my brother-in-law who, who lives up in Portland, you know, he'd always be asking me about it because he was really into investing. He is really into investing and really focused on, you know, portfolio management and how he's thinking about his own investments. And, and I'd always say, well, you should buy real estate. And he'd always say, yeah, but I have a full-time job and I actually don't want to deal with the stuff you're dealing with. Like I, when I'm, you know, visiting for Christmas or whatever, and I see that you're on the phone the whole time with, you know, attorneys and different people, like, I don't want to do that. And I never understood it. I, I'd always said, well, well, you should because the financial returns are worth it. Like imagine when you're 45, like my analysis says, and then you have this great situation. And did people have different levels of willingness to tolerate that, that difficulty? So I never understood when I was in the early days of this, why anyone would invest in someone else's deal. But 
like to me, I never got it because I was trying to buy my own properties. And through the process of starting my company, I realized that a lot of people, they actually really like their day job. They don't really want to go manage real estate full time. They don't want to deal with, they don't want to deal with it, but they know that they can get a better return than, you know, the SPY, right? They, they know they can do better than just investing in, in the stock market. And they don't, maybe they don't want to go out and find a property for themselves. And it's a lot of work. I mean, it, it is a, as you guys can also attest, like it is a lot of work. So yeah. I was surprised by the enthusiasm of my own investor base and the continuing enthusiasm to do deals. And through the process, I realized a passive LP in a syndication gains a ton of benefits, right? They don't have to find the deal. They don't have to build broker relationships. They don't have to have a special expertise in assessing property. They don't, like I did, drive to Portland four times over the pandemic with two children in the car, so 12 hours each way <laughs> to go look at deals. They didn't have to do that. They don't have to put earnest money down. They don't have to tie up money in closing costs. They don't take any debt risk, right? And then they don't have to do any work. And yet for all that, they still, in according to my underwriting and from what I've seen from other syndicators, they still receive above market-like returns. So that's a pretty good, I mean, I think that's a pretty good avenue if you're like one of my investors who's a physician that works, you know, like investment banking hours or an entrepreneur that sold a company for hundreds of millions and wants to build another company. And they're like, well, should I spend my time buying more properties and investing my portfolio or should I go build another company? And my answer was go, go build and sell another company for $50 million and let someone else do the real estate for you and earn above market like returns. And so there is a fit for everyone, you know, I mean, that's, that's been my contention and it, it's been validated by the market through this process. So that's awesome. Well, and kind of touching back to the active and the passive you've got, and that's, that's a form of investing, but when it comes to a form of making money, there's also, you know, active and passive, you know, income streams and syndication right. is absolutely an income stream because, you know, you're, buying a property and then you're selling it eventually. So that it's kind of like a form of flipping where flipping is about the most active you can get on the, on the side of a real estate income stream and, and syndication right. is up there too, just with all of the management of clients or investors and all the relationships that you have to have. So, yeah, I would say one caveat to that is I think there's two kinds of syndication. I shouldn't even say there's probably many more than that. But what I have seen is either people buy with the intention to sell in five years, and that's how everyone gets their cash back. Or I have had the privilege of meeting a couple syndicators. And there's a gentleman here in the Bay Area that's done, you know, I think he told me he's done 50 deals. The last one he did was like a $150 million purchase. He's never sold one. They don't sell it. And there's another guy in the peninsula that I'm pretty close with that buys bigger. His family's been in the business forever. They don't sell. And I started questioning the model of let me buy and then let me sell the asset. And it takes a certain kind of investor that like understands the thesis. But my contention is you get the most benefit from real estate when you hold it for the long term. If you pick the location right and you pick a good asset, you add good value to it, and then you can amortize the loan down and cash flow the asset, the tax benefits and the effect of inflation and city growth and different things over time really outweigh the benefit of me selling. And I always say to LPs, okay, so we sell, right? I sell, but now you have to pay commission. So call it 5% plus on the way out. Plus you have to pay taxes. Plus you now have to figure out where to reinvest that capital. You have reinvestment risk at the same time. 
and there's a whole bunch of other myriad expenses to go with that. And what, wouldn't it be better if we held the asset and we planned to hold it and you planned to keep it and ideally pass it to your children. So like build your legacy, build a legacy for your family and you refinance it. And that's the exit. The exit for us is to aim for a situation in which we can do a big cash out refinance, return most, if not all of the principal. And of course I hesitate to give, any kind of certainty on taxes, but in general, a tax-free, a tax-free return of capital to the investor, and they still get to own the asset at the end of the day and cash flow it over time. So that's sort of like what we have been proposing, and I, I learned that from a couple of guys that are very successful in the business, and, and that's the, the model that, that we've taken for for this. So, what are some of the objections that your investors come back with? Like, uh, well, what if I want to do something else with my money in five years or are they ever going to be able to get it out if they actually want to or? So there are ways to get liquidity from an investment in a private partnership. The first and easiest is come to me or any other member of the management team and say, I want to sell. Yeah. And you know, we can make an offer to buy the stake. If not that, then other LPs could buy the, buy the investor out. If not that there's third party private equity groups that take a very active interest in buying Actually, I remember a Bigger Pockets podcast, this really interesting guy that made a business of just buying LP stakes from, <laughs> from real estate partnerships. Like he would just, like in 08 and 09 and 2010, he was going oh, yeah. and and choosing. I mean, of course, every great real estate story starts with, I started buying in 2010, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ours included. Like, <laughs> uh, actually, I started in 2006, but. Yeah, I started yeah, in 2007. I kept yeah. buying in yeah. 2010. <laughs> so, but yeah, so there's ways. And then I think the long-term, the way I've thought about it is the long-term goal for someone like myself that's building a portfolio of assets and working with great investors that understand the model is some sort of a REIT transaction. So either roll everything into a closed-end REIT or an open-end REIT, or actually if, if the portfolio achieves a sizable enough scale, have some sort of a, you know, private to public arbitrage opportunity to take a large portfolio and roll it into actually a public REIT, which would be kind of the ultimate liquidity event. And I would say to harken back to my real estate tech VC investing experience, I think other forms of liquidity for real estate investors are around the corner. Like I think there's some big opportunities with blockchain and tokenization of assets where people are going to be able to get at it. it this is going to become a more liquid market over time. And that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's probably the biggest and most interesting market in the world. There's a lot of interest in figuring out how to ease liquidity in real estate, tokenize real estate, fractionalize ownership of real estate. I mean, you're already seeing it with some of these companies in SF where, you know, they're buying an ownership in your house, for example, and giving you some liquidity in your house. I mean, there's there are already ways that this is being done. It's 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 coming. I think in the next decade we'll see we'll see ways. So Wow. Awesome. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. We are getting a little short on time here. So. Okay. Sorry. I talk a lot. Oh, so, no, no. Uh, it's been great. Awesome. I, I think it's super beneficial. And yeah. you, know, you touch on a lot of different subjects that are wonderful. Oh. But we've got, we've got four questions at the end. Chris, our, should our we get started questions. on those? Yeah, let's do that. All right. So the, the, first, the, the first question that we have is, What's one piece of advice you would give your 25-year-old self? Well, I want to say the easy one is start buying real estate earlier. I, I wish I'd known what I... I graduated in 2009. I wish I'd known what I know now in 2009. I would have gone out and started buying property. So I have a completely different story. But 
actually, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a different tack on this and say, trust the process. I love the Steve Jobs story of how he took a calligraphy class when he was in college and that turned into a read in Portland. A read, a read. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for reminding me of the name of the university. <laughs> I was like, it's, I think it's read. But he took that calligraphy class and like he didn't know how that was going to impact his life and his journey. And I feel like my 20s had a lot of angst about where I was going in life, what I was going to do with my life, you know, feeling like I had big aspirations and things I wanted to achieve and not necessarily seeing the path to get there. And, you know, when I was in my mid 20s, getting the job at Goldman was my end all be all aspiration. It was like the end the end thing. Like it would have been amazing if I got that job. And I remember at the time I was thinking also someday I'm going to, I'm going to take this knowledge I have in investing and I'm going to form a, you know, a registered investment advisory firm, which is basically a big wealth management company. And that's like the best thing I can envision myself doing. And I had, I didn't know anything about real estate. I didn't know where the path was going to take me. And I, I guess if I had to give feedback, I'd say trust the process and trust that you are on a path to something and do the best of what you're doing and be the best, whatever you are. And just trust that like the right thing will come for you. That would have probably removed a lot of angst for me in my twenties. I like that. Just not necessarily like be content, but just like appreciate where you are and that you're going somewhere. You might just not know right now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know where it's going to go. And yeah, you just don't know. And that's okay. I mean, I think it's always good to have a plan and be aspiring for something. I certainly did my whole life and still am to this day. But I also look back and can see so many points in my own journey that have really impacted me today. But I didn't know at the time we're going to have that kind of impact for me. Like one, one brief example is when I went to GS, I went into a position where I was cold calling people all day. And I came from the you know, an equity research group. It's kind of like ivory tower approach where you're really focused on like big macro numbers and like, and listening to CEOs on conference calls and going to cold calling was kind of brutal. Like it was like, Oh my God, this is hard. And I wouldn't have picked that. Like it wouldn't have been like my choice to go do a cold calling position and have to cold call, you know, billionaires and very wealthy people and try to get them to talk to me. But in retrospect, it's like the best thing that ever happened for me because Half my investors are these people that I cold called. And like these people, like I have met so many interesting people and like my ability to pick up a phone and try to get in front of someone I want to talk to or just get in touch with someone that's very important or very powerful or whatever it may be. Like I'm completely uninhibited now. And if I hadn't had that experience, which I didn't even know I was going to have, nor would I have signed up for it in like a logical thinking mindset, I wouldn't be where I am today. And so I, I look at a lot of the things that have happened and I'm like, I'm grateful that it happened. And I don't think I could have planned it that way. So that's, that would be my, my advice would be to relax, stay ambitious, stay hungry, but trust the process. That's awesome. All right. So growing up, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? So I'm not your case study of like the, the guy that set up like a local a local newspaper or, or ran like a little business. I, I walked like a pretty straight line to quote the great, I don't know if you guys know MJ DeMarco to quote MJ DeMarco. I, he wrote unscripted and the millionaire fast lane and a couple other really awesome books, all of which I'd highly recommend. I was living a very scripted life. 
So I never like jumped off. I thought, you know, and I still think education was extremely important. I was a division one athlete. I was very like on the straight and narrow focused. And so I would say my most entrepreneurial thing I've ever done was buying my first building, which is probably like my first leap into doing something that was really not on the path that society says you need to follow this path, right? You need to you need to be a good sportsman and get and get a 4.0 GPA and go to a great university and then get an internship at Goldman and then blah, 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 blah. And that was the first time that I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something different. So that's my first one. Even with your wife objecting. <laughs> Even with my wife objecting. And she objected only recently. <laughs> she stopped objecting. <laughs> so, But I tell you, I empathize because I, I see on the, I always see on the, you know, like bigger pockets conversation pages, people saying, I can't get my wife on board. My wife doesn't want to do it. How do I drag her into this next investment? And I was like, <laughs> I have had those discussions so many. Uh, and I, I, she came around. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Our next question. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Yeah. This is a great question. So, I studied history, poli sci, and philosophy in college. And... Yeah. So, but like none of them, like no disrespect intended to the degrees, but none of them were like particularly rigorous degrees. Like I had friends doing engineering, for example, which was way harder, like way objectively harder. Yeah. I'll see you raising your hand. I admire engineering so much. I'm going to make my own son do engineering. I think it's a great, great practice. I didn't do it. I did history and poli sci and philosophy. And so I graduated in 2009 and yeah, it was tough. I mean, it was a tough time to come into the work world. Like there were not a lot of jobs and I felt like when I started my career, I was at a massive disadvantage versus all the guys and gals that studied business. And I always felt like it was very difficult for me to get my first job. And I was really fortunate because, you know, Fisher took a risk on me and, and Fisher was an amazing place to work. Like I have nothing but amazing things to say about that company. And they took a big risk on me to let me in. And I always felt in my heart, like it was my mistake not having studied the right thing in undergrad, which I, I would disagree with now. I actually think studying history is maybe one of the more valuable things one can do. I use history and how I think about things and kind of analyze situations, but that sort of inferiority complex, because I didn't study business and didn't understand finance, really fueled me and made me say, I, I, can't, I can't let myself fail because I don't have the knowledge. So I need to, be, I need to really get into self, self-knowledge, self-training. So I went from zero to like teaching myself everything I could get my hands on. So I did the CFA designation, which is three years of extreme home study to learn how to basically earn the CFA charter holder designation, which is a really difficult thing. I mean, like 50% passed the first test, something like 40% passed the second, and then, you know, like 50% passed the third. So like a narrowing group of people get to the end of this process. And it's like Like 200. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's like 280 hours of study per test. And I started doing this right when I first got married. So my wife is a total saint because I, for like three years, I was just gone studying. And I remember when I first started, I was like, I didn't know what the time value of money was. Like I had no idea what that concept was. And I remember they were like, this is a foundational concept in finance. And I was like, this is going to be bad because I don't even know what this is. Like this is, I've never heard of this. So that, that's sort of like willingness to self-educate massively shaped my journey. So when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I was already well-trained to think I can teach myself anything I want to teach myself if I just make the effort to do it. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was like, there's something here that I didn't get 
through my formal education. I didn't even get through my informal education and I need to learn about this. So from then on, I read every real estate book I could get my hands on. I, every time I worked out, I listened to a bigger pockets podcast. I was just like gung ho on this business. And I didn't buy a property for like two years after I read rich dad, poor dad. And in that time I did nothing but read, study, read blog posts, study, 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 run numbers in Excel and like figure out the business. And if I had come out of undergrad with a business degree, I might not have developed the, the felt the need to like teach myself. I might've felt like I already had it. And then I wouldn't have been in this place. So I am like, I would say my informal training has massively shaped my journey. The formal training, one piece I'll add to that in my last firm, we had a great practice when making an investment of preparing what's called an investment memorandum. So like a 10 page report on like why I like this company, you know, why this part of financial technology is interesting. What are the risks? What are the, what are the pros? What are the comparables? What are the other things we're seeing? And so one of the things I've been building into my own practice is every time I look at making an investment and I get to like the red zone to actually go in and, and do the thing, I try to actually prepare an investment memo on the investment. So I will go through and do this formal process of like, what's my thesis? Why do I like it? What are my projected returns? What's my negative case scenario? How do I get out of this thing if I have to? How am I controlling for risk? Am I lying to myself? Am I, am I fudging numbers to try to get a deal done? And I find that the practice of like writing this out forces I me to be that. honest with myself. I really, yeah, that, really that's a great that. idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's and, useful and, to share with investors. It's good. It's good for yourself, yeah. most of all, because yeah. you're the one you have to worry most about in investing. Yeah, you don't, you don't <laughs> want to get emotionally attached to something and you want it because yeah. you want it. I, I would love to see one of those. You wanna, <laughs> you I'll send you one. That? Yeah, for sure. And yeah. That's the one on Corbett. Yeah, I'll send it. <laughs> so <laughs> that is awesome. No, I mean that's right. formal education. So yeah. Yeah. And our last question is, you know, what is your Moby Dick? Normally we just ask about real estate, but I like adding in, you know, it just any like business opportunity. Like what's what's the one deal or opportunity that got away? Okay, so like I'm going to go back to my answer to number one. I think everything kind of happens for a reason. So I don't, I don't feel a lot of regret over the past or how things have actually worked out. But that Oakland fourplex, now that you mentioned it, they relisted it on the market about a year after I dropped out. And I think they made 200 grand on it. I think the elderly lady had actually departed. I don't know how or where or what was the manner of the departure, but they did great on that one. So one could say, I psyched myself out going into that deal and didn't do it. And maybe I should have because I would have had a really quick turn and or a great investment on that on that property. But yeah, other than that, I mean, you know, I, I haven't been in the I don't think I've been in the business long enough to say there's like many different opportunities that I should have gone for and I didn't go for. I am finding now that the shirking away from a as a syndicator, shirking away from a deal because of the size is a mistake. I find it perversely easier to raise capital for larger deals than, than smaller deals. And so not having the fear to go after something and trusting that you can figure it out. My thesis is if it's a good deal, there will be capital somewhere. It's just, it's on a, it's on a scale of expensiveness, right? So like the most expensive is you give it to someone else, but you can work your way down from that and work out a, a JV situation with a much larger investor where you take down something together. And so I would say, don't ever let the fear dictate your decisions. Let like the potential, the opportunity, what's the saying? Like the, the rich never ask if they can afford something, they ask how they can afford it. 
yep. right? Like how can I, how can I piece this thing together to make it work for myself? Yeah. That's sort of been my, my recent mantra to myself as I think about opportunities. That's awesome. Well, Thanks. Ari, you know, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Everything you—it's been great. Like, there's a lot of information packed in, your, in this. Your experience is just a, an awesome, awesome experience, especially for our listeners who, you know, they're working that white collar job and just hearing about how somebody got out and you know is now investing in large apartment complexes. It's it's awesome. Yeah. Well. Thanks for having me, guys. I'll give a plug too and say I couldn't do any of the things I do without you guys and Uptown Properties. Seriously, like you guys are awesome. And I will say to anyone that's thinking about investing, underwrite your deal assuming you're going to use a third-party management company. Because I think that all great real estate fails start with, I invested out of my town and I tried to self-manage it from a distance. And you just can't do it. So, you know, I wouldn't be where I am without you guys. So thank you. And thanks for having me on. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.